Thanks for downloading the Humanities Institute of Ireland podcast. This podcast features recordings of academic papers from events hosted by the Humanities Institute of Ireland in University College Dublin. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash HII. In this episode, a recording of a lecture by Dr. Patrick Gagan of Trinity College Dublin. He teaches in the School of Histories and Humanities and has published widely on the 18th and 19th centuries, including books on Robert Emmett and Daniel O'Connell. He presents the award-winning Talking History every Sunday night on News Talk Radio. His lecture was entitled Judging Dan, The Fall and Rise of the Reputation of Daniel O'Connell. The question I always get asked about Daniel O'Connell, whether from my students or if I go around uh, giving lectures on, is does O'Connell really matter? Did O'Connell achieve anything? Because, especially as we become increasingly secularised, there's a sense that many of O'Connell's greatest achievements didn't really matter. He failed with repeal in the 1830s and the 1840s. He cancelled Clontarf and was seen as having bottled it. And even the winning of Catholic emancipation in 1829 isn't really seen as a great achievement. What did it really matter if Catholics were able to sit in Parliament? It was only going to be a small, elite number that were going to go there anyway. What did it matter if Catholics were able to become judges and king's councils and so on? Because again, that was only going to be the middle class and better off in society. The poor people weren't going to benefit. They were never going to be lawyers. They were never going to be judges. They were never going to profit financially from this deal. And, and, and it would make you wonder, well, maybe this didn't really matter that maybe O'Connell's great achievement wasn't such a great achievement, and maybe his reputation, whatever it is at the moment, uh, well, certainly didn't deserve that great reputation in the late 19th and early 20th century. And I think the answer to that is that it mattered to people certainly at the time. When Daniel O'Connell decided to stand for election in County Clare in 1828, and he set out for Ennis, and he had about three days to get there and, 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 and nominate himself, before nominations closed. He was greeted all along the way. 50,000 people came out at Nina and they wanted to unhook his horses on his carriage and drag the carriage in themselves and he had to persuade them not to. 100,000 people in Tipperary, women were coming out in their underwear at night because they wanted to get a glimpse of him. When he won that election in County Clare, uh, he was put on a chair and they carried him up on that chair and and they carried him all the way from Clare to Limerick. And then when he arrived in Limerick and attempted to give a speech, they wouldn't let him speak because they just wanted to cheer and applaud. That bonfires were lit, starting in Clare and spread all across the country to telegraph the news that Catholic emancipation had been won. That this meant something to Irish people. That O'Connell was taking such a risk in running in County Clare because 3,000 British soldiers were sent to that county with orders to open fire at the first sign of trouble. And elections were notorious for two things. One, people would drink. And two, once drunk, they would get into fights. And O'Connell gave the order. There would be no drinking during this election campaign. There would be no violence. And that order was followed to the letter. No drink was taken. When people from the ruling ascendancy would go around and kick and hit people to try and provoke them into fighting... And when they would be about to respond, someone would say, remember the order, and they would stop. And the fact that you had all those soldiers lined up there, waiting for the first sign of trouble, and were never called upon to act, that terrified the British government more than anything. Robert Peel, the British Home Secretary, said that because of that complete show of control that O'Connell had demonstrated, British power in Ireland had been shivered to atoms. 
The Duke of Wellington was forced to go to the king and tell him that he, Wellington, was the victor of, of Waterloo. He had defeated Napoleon. He could defeat the Irish if they rebelled, but he could not defeat this. This was something he could not defeat. That O'Connell controlled the county and he controlled the country. So this was extraordinarily powerful, and this did mean something to the Irish people. And when O'Connell then was unable to take his seat in 1829, when he went, because the king had insisted that the Emancipation Act that he had reluctantly allowed to go forward would not be backdated to include O'Connell. And O'Connell must take the existing oaths, or the seat would fall vacant. O'Connell was, was not allowed to uh, represent himself in the House of Commons. Finally, the whole gallery was packed. Everyone came because they wanted to hear O'Connell speak. What would he be like in Parliament? The future King of France was there in the gallery. Dignitaries from all around Europe. But O'Connell had established this international reputation by leading this peaceful movement. And they wondered, what would O'Connell do? Because how could he take those oaths? He would have to swear an oath that the worship of the Blessed Virgin Mary was impious and idolatrous. He would have to denounce the principle of transubstantiation. He would have to say that the worship of the saints as practiced by the Catholic Church was wrong. And when on the 18th of May, O'Connell stood up and entered the House of Commons, it was packed, because everyone wanted to see, would he spit on the faith of his, of his people? Would he betray everything that he fought for? And he went in, and he did something very unexpected. When they asked him, will you take these oaths? He said, oh, excuse me, uh, could I see those oaths? And so they went behind and they took out these big pieces of cardboard where all the things were written on and they handed them to O'Connell. And O'Connell looked at them and he put his hands in his pockets and took out his spectacles and put them on. And for two minutes he began reading them to himself as if he had never seen them before in his life. And there was absolute silence, a hush in the chamber, wondering what would he do. And finally, after a two minutes that seemed to go on forever, he just looked up and he said... Well, there is one piece here that I know definitely to be untrue. There is another thing here that I think is untrue, and the rest is ridiculous. And he flung the pieces of cardboard across the chamber and turned around and walked out. And that small victory meant more to the Irish Catholics than anything else. Because what he was doing was representing a nation that he felt had been broken down, not just by recent defeats like 1803 and 1798, and the abolition of the Irish Parliament in between that, but by centuries of defeat. But O'Connell believed that you could walk down any street in Ireland and you could tell the Catholics, because they were the ones who would refuse to make eye contact. They were the ones who would have bad posture. They were the ones who seemed ashamed and humiliated and defeated. And that's why, as a lawyer, he was determined to make himself a champion of those people. That's why every time O'Connell would address the people, he would end with the lines, of Byron, hereditary bondsmen know ye not, who would be free, themselves must strike the blow. O'Connell believed that the Irish were slaves, they were the hereditary bondsmen, but if they wanted to be free, they would have to take responsibility for their own actions. They couldn't rely on people like Henry Grattan, or George Canning, or people in England to represent their interests. If they wanted to show the world that they were more than slaves, they would have to get involved in that themselves. And that is why in the 1830s and the 1840s, O'Connell was uncompromising on the issue of slavery across the world. He alienated the Young Irelanders because he refused to accept money from uh, repeal organisations in the United States that, 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 that approved of slavery. 
He appears in Martin Chuzzlewit, the novel by Charles Dickens, uh, uh, and, and, and people in America tearing up their contributions to him because they discover that he's a supporter of emancipation. And O'Connell was extraordinary in that period because even when the Emancipation Bill was passing in 1829, a lobby from the West Indian slave group approached him and said, we, we control about 20 MPs. If you continue to oppose slavery, we will block emancipation. Will you compromise with us? And O'Connell said, no, no compromise, even if emancipation fails. And in the end, it didn't block emancipation, but he was prepared to sacrifice it. He was prepared to let emancipation fail, and he was prepared to let things fail in the 1830s and the 1840s, because he would not compromise. And you see, we don't really think that O'Connell on slavery is a particularly noble thing now. Because we think, of course slavery was a terrible thing. Of course black people are equal to white people. But that was not the general view in the 19th century. And even the abolitionists believed that slavery was wrong because many white abolitionists in the United States, for example, believed that slavery was wrong not for what it did to the black man, but for what it did to the white man and how it corrupted him. But O'Connell saw no difference. When he heard the stories of, of black women being raped by their masters, of being forced to produce children, and then the children being sold into slavery, so that their children were more of a, of a curse than a blessing to them. He saw himself in that story. He saw himself on a perfect level of equality with the blacks in America, because he saw himself as that slave. He saw the Irish people as being treated in that way, and he would refuse to compromise, and he would speak at the abolitionist rallies in 1840, at the first World's Anti-Slavery Convention in London in 1840, when some of the great black abolitionists were there, Charles Lennox Remond, who said, up until this point, I thought I was an abolitionist, but now I know that I was wrong. After hearing on O'Connell, language that was like, speeches that were like watching lightning flash across the sky, like listening to the rolling of the thunder across a stormy afternoon. That was real fire. That was real abolitionism. That O'Connell established himself as this great for William Lloyd Garrison, for Frederick Douglass, for Frederick Douglass who visited. Again, I might show you a clip from President Obama's St. Patrick's Day address when he talked about uh, Frederick Douglass and he talked about Daniel O'Connell. How Frederick Douglass, fleeing America in 1845, came to Ireland because he wanted to hear this great abolitionist. He had heard the stories of the monster meetings and couldn't believe that this could be true. Couldn't believe that one man could speak to huge crowds and be heard by any substantial number. And spoke on the same platform as O'Connell, and O'Connell being the vain, arrogant man that he was, introduced him as the black O'Connell. And then when O'Connell went on to speak, and listening to O'Connell, he realised that the stories had not been exaggerated. And Douglas would later write about how it was such a blow, not just for Ireland, but for the entire anti-slavery movement when O'Connell died in 1847. Because who was he replaced by? He was replaced by people like John Mitchell, whose stated ambition was to end up in Alabama and own a plantation with 300 slaves, who ended up becoming a great friend of the Confederate President Jefferson Davis. People like Thomas Francis Marr, who even though he became a Union general, still thought that it was inappropriate for O'Connell to talk about slavery. People like Thomas Davis, who also thought an Irish leader shouldn't be interfering in the domestic affairs of another country. And O'Connell said, what do I care about that? He insulted the American ambassador, Andrew Stevenson, in the 1830s, who wanted to fight a duel with him. 
Because Khan said, I'll have nothing to do with slave breeders and slave traffickers. And when stories like this would reach Queen Victoria, she was disgusted. How rude, how savage, how brutal is this Irishman? The Catholic bishops, Irish-American in New York and elsewhere, denounced O'Connell for interfering in things that were none of his business. And O'Connell was prepared to alienate the Americans. He said George Washington was a hypocrite because George Washington only owned slaves and only freed them on his deathbed. He said that the Declaration of Independence should read, not all men are created equal, but some men are created equal. That America was a polluted land that he would never set foot on as long as it allowed the sin of slavery. And this was something that was so powerful for O'Connell. When he was speaking at a meeting down in Mallow, at one of the famous monster meetings, and 200,000 people there, and afterwards there was one of the big public banquets, and a huge crowd of men and women. And a balladeer was singing one of Thomas More's melodies, Oh, where is the slave so lowly, condemned to chains unholy? And O'Connell was listening to this in a reverie. And finally he stood up, and he interrupted the singing, Oh, where are the slaves so lowly, condemned to chains unholy? And he said, I am not that slave. I am not that slave. I will never be that slave. And the entire crowd stood up on their feet, and they began shouting, we are not that slave. We are not those slaves. We will never allow ourselves to be those slaves. Of course, O'Connell was an actor. Everything for O'Connell was theatre. He'd used the exact same thing six months earlier at a speech in the corporation debate against Isaac Butt. He himself had quoted the lines, Aware oh, slaves so lowly, condemned to chains unholy. And then he did the exact same performance. And what it meant was that O'Connell just went up to the harpist on the day of the Mallow dinner and told him, do you know those lines by more? Can you play that for me? And then manufactured the whole thing so he could stand up dramatically. And as Oliver McDonough said, he was like the, the, the uh, church revivalist of the future. He was that, and part of that tradition, making it a spiritual, almost religious experience with his listeners. Because that was how O'Connell had trained himself. People go on about the great voice of O'Connell, the way uh, when you would address people from, from his balcony at Marion Square, you could hear him perfectly well, every single word, from the houses at the opposite end of the square. And even when you think about how there wouldn't have been the traffic of today, that is still an extraordinary achievement. But that wasn't some accident of nature that O'Connell was just born with this amazing voice. O'Connell, from the very beginning, wanted to be a great orator. He said from the age of seven he wanted to write his name on the page of history. When he was a law student in London, he would attend debates in the House of Commons and practice afterwards. He would model himself on the Prime Minister, William Pitt. How Pitt could ensure that without raising his voice, he could be heard no matter where someone was sitting. He would go to the theatre and monitor the actors and write about them afterwards. Who was good? Who could make themselves heard? He never stopped commenting on his, on his own speaking ability. He would always be reflecting and analysing it. At the age of 50, he'd be writing to his wife saying, my speech began well, but then it drifted off. My speech began brilliantly, but then I lost the crowd. He was always reflecting, always thinking about it. His great ambition was not to be a lawyer. It was to be an MP in an Irish parliament. But that was stopped because the parliament was abolished in 1800. And then what could he do? Well, it took him another 29 years before he was even able to take a seat in the British House of Commons. And so he became a lawyer. And even there, his religion worked against him. 
The fact that he was a Catholic mean that he couldn't become a king's counsel, he couldn't take chancery business, he couldn't, uh, 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 he had to defer to a, a, a king's counsel on certain cases. So that very often the king's counsel, realizing that O'Connell was the better lawyer, would, would arrange the, the cross-examining of the witnesses so that it was an insignificant witness first that the king's counsel would take, and then the most important witness second, so that O'Connell would get to them. And that ate away at O'Connell. The driving force for O'Connell throughout his life is his anger, his rage, the fact that he was the best lawyer from about 1810 on, and yet he was earning less money than people who worked half the amount of time because of their religion. That when he stood up at those Clare hustings in 1828, and people said, well, you're only running because you want Catholic emancipation, so you earn more money as a barrister. You're doing this because of self-interest. The man making that claim was Francis Gore, a barrister, and Connell said, yes, I would earn more money. The point is, Francis Gore and I started at the bar at the exact same time. He has no practice. I have a booming practice. Now, what stopped him from being successful? Lack of talent. What has stopped me? My religion. So am I to be subjected to the taunts of a briefless barrister, a bigot without business? In the same speech, in the same debate, William V.C. Fitzgerald had stood up, and he was incredibly popular in the county. He supported Catholic emancipation. His father, James Fitzgerald, had been the prime sergeant and had lost his job because he opposed the union. But he was a supporter of the Peel Wellington government, and that's why he was opposed. And the campaign team that O'Connell had put together had made terrible allegations about William V.C. Fitzgerald. They'd accused him of embezzling £100,000 from the public purse. And William V.C. Fitzgerald stood up and said, Is that fair? My father is on, on his deathbed. He does not know that I'm being opposed in this election. And if he knew, it would kill him. And he broke down in tears. And he said, I apologise for being so emotional. I'll sit down and cry, but no, no, carry on. And he, and he talked beautifully about his father and about what this would mean to him. And by the end of the speech, there were enormous cheers. And what was O'Connell to do next? If he stood up and agreed with V.C. Fitzgerald, well, then there was no reason to vote for him. If he stood up and denounced him, he was attacking the man with the crowd crying along with him. So O'Connell did what he always did. He stood up, made a few jokes, said maybe it had been a bit unfair to accuse him of embezzling £100,000. It was probably only £20,000. And then he talks about the allegations that yes, O'Connell would profit financially from this. He would benefit. But he talked about all the years that he had worked for the Catholic cause, using his own money to pay for meeting halls using his own money to pay for dinners afterwards. And that his family had made sacrifices. And that his wife had suffered. And that he hadn't been able to provide for her in the way that he would have liked. And he said, I have shed tears over this. I have cried about what this has cost me and my wife and my children. But unlike other people, I shed my tears in private, for I do not cry in public. And with that, any sympathy for V.C. Fitzgerald was neutralised and the crowd was all on O'Connell's side. And he went on and won that spectacular victory in County Clare. And I think the problem with trying to judge Daniel O'Connell or trying to assess his reputation is that, well, one, we're, 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 we're the victim of the sources that have survived. And two, I suppose it's hard to understand a man who was so contradictory, who was nasty, a bully, 
vain, dishonest. I suspect that if you're really to have some kind of Moriarty tribunal into the O'Connell finances and the finances of every single movement he was involved with from 1810 to 1847, you would find for every single decade severe financial irregularities. Margaret O'Hogarty has written about it recently for the 1810s and the Catholic Board and how Edward K. the Secretary ended up in, in a debtor's prison because O'Connell would refuse to honour commitments that had been made. In the 1820s, allegations were made about where did the money go. In the 1830s, when he sent up a precursor society to fight for appeal, his own treasurer, Peter Purcell, went to the papers and denounced him of having abused the funds. In the 1840s, the Young Irelanders were suspicious about what O'Connell was doing with the money. But O'Connell was never good with money. The problem was, he was always in debt from the age of 14 on. Partly it was because he knew he had a very rich uncle, Hunting Cap, and as soon as he died, he would inherit Derryanna and inherit all the money. And how long could Hunting Cap live? This was the 19th century. How long did the old man have in him? Well, he lived till he was 97, <laughs> when O'Connell was 50 years old in 1825. And then what did O'Connell do? Well, he immediately borrowed more money so that he could renovate Derryanna and expand it and turn it into a proper home for a chieftain so that when people visited. And O'Connell could never really separate the public from the private. That he was using his own money, and he often did for these public meetings and for the dinners and all of that, he had to look like a chieftain. He had to live like a chieftain with the carriage and with the grand house and all of that. And therefore he needed the lifestyle support. So it was very hard for him. He saw himself as the hero in the Irish story. And therefore whatever was going to be good for him. And, and, and extraordinary stuff. Splitting the movement in the 1810s because he would refuse to compromise on the idea of securities. No veto would be given to the British government on the appointment of bishops, and the movement splits. And then as soon as the movement has split, and he's got rid of all of those who won't follow the Econ-like vision, what does he do? He immediately suggests to the government that he will accept securities. And he does it again in 1825. In 1828, he swears, if I'm elected, I will defend the 40 shilling freeholders with my dying breath. They will not be disenfranchised. And within a couple of meetings with the Lord Lieutenant afterwards, they are disenfranchised. And again, what evidence survives? Because whatever about the allegations about his private life, which are always going to be hard to substantiate, sometimes we're at the mercy of, but what evidence has survived? In 1835, it's probably the darkest 12-month period of O'Connell's life. <coughs> it looks like he's going to be destroyed financially. His election return in Dublin was contested. The return of his sons was contested, his cousins, and anyone connected with him. It looked like he would have to pay for every single person who voted for him, 8,000 people, he would have to pay for them to go to London to testify that they had voted for him of their own free will without any bribe or any pressure. He estimated that this would cost him £40,000 and he would be forced to sell all his property, all his land, uh, and, and he would be finished. So what did he do? Well, he looked into a number of ways to raise money. And one of them we only know about because, foolishly, he put it all down on paper. He went to a wealthy Catholic banker, Alexander Raphael, and offered him a seat in Parliament. He would make him an MP for the county of Carlow. All it would cost was £1,000 up front and £1,000 in the event of the election being successful. He told him, 
you will never meet so safe a speculation. And Raphael accepted the terms, and uh, O'Connell took the first £1,000. O'Connell had also promised that event, in the event of any challenge, any legal dispute, O'Connell would take care of all of those expenses. So Raphael stood, paid the first £1,000, won the election, but it was contested. Because again, allegations of bribes being, being used, allegations of intimidation, and there was going to be an inquiry. And O'Connell wrote to him and said, where is the second £1,000? And Raphael said, well, it, the, the, the seat is being challenged. And O'Connell said, how dare you shrink from your engagement with me? Stick to our agreement. And Raphael said, well, as a sign of good faith, I will. Here is the second £1,000. Now will you look after uh, the legal expenses? And, and O'Connell then went what we would call radio silent. Mm -hmm. Refused to answer any subsequent letters. Refused to get involved. And Raphael lost the seat. But because Raphael kept all the letters from O'Connell to him and had copies of his own letters, he was then able to go and publish those letters later that year. He was then able to bring this all before Parliament. And O'Connell did what he always did, lie, wasn't involved. In fact, not only did I spend the full £2,000, I spent more money than that. He owes me an extra £15 and misdirect, trying to uh, cause a scandal about something else. But a huge parliamentary inquiry that was very damaging to O'Connell, and the only thing that saved O'Connell was the fact that he'd entered into that loose alliance with the Whigs the previous year, and they would not see him hang, because otherwise he would almost certainly have been forced out of Parliament in 1836, and he would almost certainly have faced some kind of prosecution afterwards. And you see other examples of that. In the early 1830s, O'Connell had the problem of the O'Gorman Man. This young man who had been very influential in O'Connell winning the, the campaign in 1828 would then have become increasingly insane as the 1830s went on. He ended up going off to fight in the Tsarist army in the American Civil War, came back and became a Parnellite MP in the 1880s, and at the age of 81 fought a duel uh, defending Parnell's honour. But he became increasingly erratic, threatening O'Connell's son to a duel when he stood against him in County Clare, uh, giving money to the local butchers to buy whiskey so they would get drunk and start a riot in the town. So what did O'Connell do? This was a man who was causing a threat to the movement. Well, O'Connell wrote a letter to Dublin Castle providing information about him, information that would help the prosecution. And a few years later, when the government wanted to get revenge on O'Connell, they did this. They said O'Connell was an informer. O'Connell met with Dublin Castle officials and provided information about the man. And O'Connell just did what he always did, lie and misdirect. He said, and quite honestly, I never met with these people, which is perfectly true. He did it all in the letter. I never met with these people. And then he says quite explicitly in his own correspondence, I will now make an allegation about the Courier newspaper to throw them off the scent. And that succeeded. And that was the thing about O'Connell, that there are so many aspects that are unattractive. There are so many aspects, especially when you look at the 1830s, where there are only certain parts of the evidence that have survived. When Henry Hunt, the MP, sent to Alan Courtney's the draft pamphlet cataloguing her mistreatment at the hands of O'Connell and the way he hadn't supported her or the son she had, Henry Hunt wrote at the end of this letter, I am writing this to you so it won't become a public scandal. I would not have believed a single thing she said except I know what kind of man you are. And O'Connell, of course, responded furiously. 
accusing Henry Hunt of being a blackmailer, saying that there wasn't even a woman involved, that he was sure Henry Hunt had written the whole thing himself. Afterwards, he said, I've been investigating this. I've looked into it and discovered that this woman doesn't even have a son, that she's a strolling actress, that she's this, that, and the other. And I think one of the things that always haunted O'Connell was that in 1836, when the son by Alan Courtney, now calling himself Henry O'Connell, started attending church in, on Sunday, the church that he knew Daniel O'Connell went to, because he wanted to get a, a sight of the man he believed was his father. He was assaulted by John O'Connell, and Daniel went over and says, please leave the boy alone, and that became a big court case, and that made the whole scandal very public. I think that was a crucial figure in killing Mary O'Connell, who died just a few months later. And for the rest of his life, Daniel O'Connell could never speak about his wife without breaking down into tears. And I think he always felt that if the story was untrue, it had certainly caused her an awful lot of pain and contributed to her decline. And if it was true, well then, he had directly brought about it. Because Mary O'Connell, from the beginning of their marriage, had wondered about her husband's fidelity. She received anonymous letters from, from women claiming to have had affairs with O'Connell in the 1810s, before he had become such a national figure. And her response was, we can't afford to pay any more women, because he was already paying a woman, a Mrs. Y, from some entanglement they had in the 1790s before he was married. In the, in the 1820s, when she's off in Paris with the children on some ridiculous economising measure, she writes to O'Connell, forbidding him from seeing the governess. Forbidding him. Why is he visiting the governess? The children are all with, with the mother in, in France. And who are the women that Ellen Courtney alleges that O'Connell was having relationships with? They include the governesses of his children. But again, because the evidence is tangled there, we don't know. We certainly know for Alexander Raphael that there was a dodgy transaction there, because the correspondence is preserved in black and white. And I think that's part of the problem with O'Connell, that when you look at his legal career, we usually try to focus on the legal cases that show man is best. The man able to uh, confuse witnesses so much that they end up agreeing with whatever O'Connell wants them to say. The way he's able to stand up to the judges. The judges who were strong and proud and anti-Catholic and would speak down to O'Connell and the other lawyers, and O'Connell would just match them point for point. At a time when he was waiting for a case to be heard and the judge Baron McFarland would refuse to allow a case to go to law, O'Connell stood up and he said, well, this is why it should go to trial, and here are the reasons. And the judge Baron McFarland said, Mr. O'Connell, you don't have a brief in this case, it's none of your business. And O'Connell replied, well, if it does go to trial, I will have a brief, so it is my business. And the judge said, Mr. O'Connell, when I was at the bar, it was not in my habit to anticipate briefs. And O'Connell replied, when you were at the bar, I never took you as my model. And now that you're on the bench, I will not suffer your dictation. And the judge, humiliated, allowed the case to go to trial. On another occasion, the judge would refuse to allow O'Connell to call a witness, saying, that's not the law. And the court adjourned for the day. And the next day, when it resumed, the judge said, well, I studied a few legal textbooks last night, and I realised that we can allow this witness to be called. And O'Connell stood up and he said, My Lord, if you had known as much law yesterday as you do today, what an amount of time and effort and strain you would have saved me and my clients. And then he didn't wait for the judge to call the witness. He turned to the crier and said, Crier, please call the witness. 
and everyone noticed how the judge was red-faced and embarrassed and humiliated, but remains absolutely silent. Because what O'Connell was doing in that period was making himself a champion of the Irish people. He was showing that he was on a level of equality with them. That he was saying that this culture of defeat that had gone on for centuries could be confronted. That they weren't slaves. That they could stand up for this. And he could be vicious in these court cases. In 1827, he was defending Father Tom Maguire, a young 32-year-old Catholic priest who was accused of having had an inappropriate relationship with a young girl, 18 years old, Anne McGarrahan in County Leitrim, that uh, he had even married her himself in a secret ceremony, that she had become pregnant and had, and had gone off to England to have the child, the child was, was stillborn, and, uh, and now the father brought a case against O'Connell. Now, there was certainly an element of anti-Catholic action going on there, because McGarren, although bankrupt, was supported by some of the top Protestant lawyers at the time, like John Henry North. It was certainly clear that they wanted to make an example of Father Tom, because he was a Catholic controversialist. He had engaged in a lot of uh, theological debates over the previous few years. He was uh, one of the most well-known Catholic priests in the country. But there's also an extraordinary amount of evidence that Father Tom was guilty. And it's not that difficult for us in this present day to believe that a young 32-year-old Catholic priest may have had an inappropriate sexual relationship with a young 18-year-old girl. Certainly O'Connell himself refused to call some of his own witnesses <coughs> because he was afraid that they would incriminate the priest. So what did O'Connell do? Well, he called Anne McGarrahan to the trial, to, to the stand. He complimented on her very fine clothes, asked her who she had slept with to be able to afford such clothes. He denied that she had ever been pregnant, although he said that she had given herself abundant opportunity to become pregnant. He called her a practice prostitute. He said that she had slept with every man in, in Leitrim, that she was a strumpet. He said that, um, he said to, well look at her. Why would my client have, 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 have stooped from his heavenly feast to feed on such wretched carrion as this. What beauty is there about her? And he won the case. Of course, it was overturned a few months later uh, because uh, it was discovered that a lot of the evidence actually uh, went the other way. Uh, they never went to trial again. And when O'Connell stood for election in County Clare, uh, a number of priests came down to Clare to canvass for him, and one of them was Father Tom McGuire, the most popular Catholic priest uh, in the country. And O'Connell, writing to his wife that night, said, that was the greatest speech of my life. He didn't tell his wife what was in the speech, but he said, that was my greatest speech. Because O'Connell always knew that you would do whatever it would take to win. Whatever you had to say, whatever you had to do. You would compromise, you would sacrifice everything, and that winning was the key thing. And you see him then uh, returning to those lines of Byron in the 1820s when he was trying to raise a Catholic movement that was completely broken and apathetic. When O'Connell would have meetings of the Catholic Association in Dublin, eight people would turn up, and the meetings would be cancelled, because he needed to have ten people present. Eight people. So that's O'Connell and seven others. Eight of them gathered around upstairs of the bookstore on Cable Street to talk about the Catholic affairs of the nation. And again, people say, well, what does that show? Does that show that the Irish people didn't care about emancipation, that emancipation didn't mean anything for them? 
But it shows just how broken down and apathetic people, not broke, that, that they believed that emancipation would never come. They thought it would come in 1801 with the Union. They thought it would come with all the various bills that got through the House of Commons and then got blocked in the Lords. And there was this belief that it would never come. And if it did come, it would come by being loyal to the king when George IV visited, which O'Connell himself went out of his way uh, to humble himself before, to get him on side. They believed it must come externally. And so O'Connell came up with the great idea. Let's have a Catholic rent, a penny a month. Let people pay a small amount that they could all afford, but all become part of the movement. Hereditary bondsmen, know ye not. If you want to be free, you must strike the blow. You must show that you are worthy of being free. Therefore, prove that to me a penny a month. But every time he tried to bring forward this proposal, he couldn't, because there were only eight or nine or seven people. And one day in February, he was getting increasingly frustrated. Eight people in the room. So he went downstairs to the bookstore, and there were two Catholic priests there. And priests were honorary members. And he said, I need you upstairs for a few minutes, just so we can have a quorum. And the priest went, no, 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 we're not getting involved in any political affairs. And I said, no, I need you. And he shoved them up the stairs. And when they went up, the count was done, ten. And so the rights proceed, and the priest drifted away. And that's how the Catholic rent got through the Catholic Association. And O'Connell's son, John, at Plumbo's, talks about he was mocked by his school friends, this penny-a-month scheme for liberation Ireland. But as the year went on, it gained momentum. And suddenly then people felt that this was their cause, and that they were able to influence and shape it, and that this was, this was meaningful for them. And so it culminated in that great victory then of O'Connell in 1828. And he found then in the 1840s, what was he going to do? Well, he was just going to bring this on to a national level. Suddenly now it was going to be a national movement where uh, people would contribute to the repeal rent, but also he would do something that had never been done before. He would give the people of Ireland an opportunity to hear him speak about this issue. That they could come, and so over the course of about six months, from March 1843 to October, he went around to 31 major spots in the country. And if you do a kind of a, a, a map of that and have the radius of, 10 mile radius of people that could come to it, it was effectively leaving out Ulster, which he always had a, a blind spot to. It allowed people around the country to come and hear O'Connell. And the first one in Trim on the 16th of March, about 50,000 people, culminating in those massive ones, Mullinast on the 1st of October, were close to a million. The same size, certainly, as Tara on the 15th of August, close to a million. We certainly know from the figures of, of the, the toll booths in Dublin how many carriages were going in and out of Dublin at that time. And people going because they wanted to hear O'Connell, they wanted to hear what he had to say on these issues. They wanted to know uh, uh, whether this was a movement that could succeed. And so you had at that meeting at Mullamas them taking out a, a, a green cap with a gold band and giving it to O'Connell saying, my only regret is that this is not a crown of gold. But when the government heard this, they were terrified saying, he is now being crowned by the people. O'Connell was talking about repeal courts being set up because the Catholic repeal magistrates had been dismissed. So you would set up your own law courts and if you had agreements, you would go to them instead of the government courts. He was talking about calling a council for 300 in Dublin, which was coincidentally not the same size as the old Irish Parliament. 
In fact, he was doing many of the things that were done by uh, the Irish Revolutionary Movement in 1919 to 1922. And so they decided that this could not be continued, and so they cancelled the meeting of Clontarf, and in a way, O'Connell's reputation never recovered from that. Even though the Young Irishers all went along with it at the time, although subsequently were to denounce it. And it looked like O'Connell probably would lose a lot of his prestige, except that the government made the mistake of arresting him and putting him on trial in the Catholic country with not a single Catholic juror uh, on the jury list. Because when they produced the list of the 700 eligible jurors uh, in Dublin, the pages that had the names of the 48 Catholic jurors that were eligible had mysteriously disappeared. That somehow they had just been accidentally ripped out. And so an exclusively Protestant jury, uh, the, the indictment, the original indictment against O'Connell and the other and the other foreign charge was a hundred yards long. In the end, uh, they brought about twelve charges against him. There were a complete jungle of activity. And the House of Lords was easily able to overturn it afterwards, uh, because they said if this was allowed, then justice in Ireland would become a mockery, a snare, and a delusion. But it was a show trial. And O'Connell defended himself was sentenced to two years in prison. Uh, prison was in fact a nice release for him because he was put in the governor's mansion in Richmond and, and given, sent food from all around the country and he was able to exercise and recover from the exertions of that. But in a way the movement never recovered because suddenly it all of these tensions with young Irelanders who thought that it was inappropriate that O'Connell was getting involved in foreign affairs and denouncing slavery and alienating the Americans. The fact that he would refuse to consider a violent response no matter what. The fact that he was old and they were young and they thought he was yesterday's man. And O'Connell would sit down and tell them stories about how in the olden days there was this old man called Grattan who thought he was leading the movement, but he, the young O'Connell, overturned them. And they saw O'Connell as the old Grattan and them as the young guns who should be taking over. And so increasing tensions in that movement in 1844 and 1845, culminating in a major fight over the use of force, culminating in a major fight over uh, a, a bill, the Godless Colleges Bill, that O'Connell denounced, I don't know, partly because it wasn't his measure, partly because it was a way of splitting the movement, partly as a way of, 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 of leading this. You had Thomas Davis, the great Trinity uh, orator, former altar of the College Historical Society, standing up to O'Connell. But O'Connell was always mocking these juvenile orators. He knew he could run rings around them. When, at one of these meetings, uh, there was a young Catholic delegate, uh, uh, Conway speaking, and, and uh, Davis hated him and known him from their time in Trinity, despised him and stood up and said, well, I agree with the sentiments of my young Catholic friend, my, my very good Catholic friend, my excellent Catholic friend, Mr. Conway. And O'Connell immediately stood up and he said, what's wrong with being a Catholic? And Dave said, no, no, nothing's wrong with being a Catholic. Well, clearly there's something wrong with being a Catholic. The very sneering way you kept saying, my good Catholic friend, my excellent Catholic friend, you clearly think there's something wrong with being a Catholic. And Davis responded with the line that you should never use if you're accused of prejudice. He said, no, 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 some of my best friends are Catholic. And then O'Connell just went for, the, went for him. And Davis went up and delivered his speech, which was starting off against O'Connell's position. And then halfway through, he just completely reversed himself and ended up agreeing with O'Connell. And in the end, broke down in tears 
And O'Connell, being the great showman, went up to him and he says, Ah, Davis, you know I love you. And gave him a huge hug. <laughs> and Davis sadly uh, contracted, I think, scarlet fever a few months later and died. And then he became the great martyr that uh, had suffered under the, the bullying nature of O'Connell. Of course, for those next few months, he was mocked by the Islanders whenever, whenever they, they saw him. Charles Gallon Duffy and others would sing to him uh, the lines, uh, you must not weep for us, dear son, you must not weep for us. And it was seen as, as, as a sign of weakness that he had allowed uh, the great ox of O'Connell uh, to destroy him in that way. And the movement never recovered from that. When peace resolutions were brought forward by O'Connell, it led to a final secession. Uh, William Smith O'Brien, Thomas Francis Marr, John Mitchell, and all of those. And I suppose in a way O'Connell had run out of road. There was nowhere else to go with his repeal movement. The monster meetings had been a failed strategy, declared illegal. He couldn't go back to that. His energy was failing. His health was gone. So what could he do? And uh, he was also preoccupied with the problem of the famine. The fact, that, the fact that he knew that this catastrophe was coming. And he spent all his time studying meteorological conditions, trying to analyse what was going, going wrong, getting involved in various committees in Dublin, using his own money to pay for food to come in to look after his tenants in County, in County Kerry. And all the time obsessed by what was going on. But telling his friends, I still have it. I can, I can speak for our people. I know it looks like my energy is gone. I know it looks like my voice is failing. But I, I'm, I'm just conserving my strength. I can do something to save our people. And he made it clear from 1845, the first signs of trouble in Ireland, he made it clear to the British that he would give up repeal forever if they just proved that they were capable of governing Ireland by making sure that people didn't starve. If they did that, he would give it up forever. And as 1846 went on, he became increasingly haunted by the fact that he wasn't doing enough and that enough wasn't being done. And the O'Connell tribute his castles, he, he, he used everything that he had to try and even redirecting ships of the British Navy to bring grain and corn into Kerry. And then finally, in 1847, his health and strength almost completely gone, he decided he would go and address the House of Commons. Now, the House of Commons was a chamber that had hated O'Connell throughout the 1830s. Even the Whigs after the Alliance never really had much time for them because he would bully them, he would intimidate them. He would call them nicknames that would last forever. He would call them one-armed miscreants. When Lord Maidstone would get up one, one day when he was drunk and, and launch a trade against O'Connell, O'Connell would just stand up and say, I would advise the gentleman to hold his liquor. <laughs> He would call someone else a chance child of war and fortune. He destroyed Benjamin Disraeli uh, when he was giving his maiden speech. And Disraeli quite pathetically responded, Oh, you haven't listened to me today, but the day will come when you will hear me. Which later came to be seen as a prophecy, but at the time was just seen as a pathetic uh, crime of a man who'd been humiliated. O'Connell was someone who was able to make a, an entire chamber of people who did not even like him. He was able to make them laugh. And a few minutes later, he was able to make them cry. That he was able to control and dominate the chamber. Charles Dickens loved O'Connell so much, because Charles Dickens' first job was as a parliamentary reporter. 
and he would hear O'Connell's speeches, and he would say that sometimes he was so moved by them, he wasn't able to write. He would have to leave down his pencil because he was so overwhelmed by, by the emotion. He talked in years later, in particular, of a speech O'Connell had given when a, a grandfather had been leading his, his granddaughter uh, uh, through a, a village in Ireland, and all along the ground there were uh, the bodies of dead people. And I think in, in The Old Curiosity Shop, a book which ironically enough O'Connell hated, uh, you see that storyline of the grandfather uh, wandering around England with his granddaughter uh, uh, reworked in that. That O'Connell was someone who, who, who had terrified them, but who had also impressed them, this great orator, who was seen as unruly and savage because of his accent, because he didn't understand what off-the-record meant. When a Dublin Castle chief secretary had an off-the-record conversation with him about something, and O'Connell then afterwards didn't quite like what was being done, he revealed the details of the off-the-record. And the chief secretary offers the, 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 the Lord Grey's government collapsed in 1834, the great repeal, the great reform administration, because O'Connell leaked an off-the-record conversation. They thought, this guy's a scoundrel. He abuses us. And then when we order him to either fight a duel or apologize, he refuses to do either. He says, there's blood in my hands and I don't fight duels and neither will I apologize. And he said, this goes against our code of conduct. So when O'Connell stood up in February 1847 to give that final plea on behalf of the Irish nation, he was facing a parliament that had not been his friend over the previous 17 years. And the extraordinary thing about that speech is that he was listened to with absolute respect and an absolute silence. The tragedy is that for all of O'Connell's boasts about how he was preserving his friend for one last mission, his power was gone. He stood up and he could not project his voice anywhere. From as far as near as Mark is, could not be heard. And for the entire speech that he gave, which is preserved in the Hansard records because unusually for O'Connell, you had written the speech out in advance. If you look at the official Hansard record, it begins, Mr. O'Connell was understood to say, because he could not be heard. And it was a speech that had none of the anger of his previous speeches. There was no sense of, I told you so. This vindicates everything I've been saying about the Union from 1800 when I gave my first public speech. There was no recrimination and no blame. He said, if you do not save us, two million people will die. Now is the time to show that you are capable of governing our country. You must do this. I plead for my people, you must do this. But none of it was heard. And O'Connell, broken afterwards, made that final pilgrimage to trying to get to Rome and died along the way in general and suffering from all of these and nightmares along the way, thinking he would be buried alive, thinking he would repeal, uh, reenacting a lot of the great debates of the 1820s and the 1840s. And when he died then, and the body was brought back to Ireland, a huge procession, a million people it was said, the huge monument built to him decades later in Glasnevin Cemetery. But then the reputation did suffer in the 20th century. And Eamon de Valera, as president, unveiled, reopened Derry-Nan as a public museum in 1967, he said that his generation, the revolutionary generation, had been too tough on O'Connell. That they had never appreciated the circumstances that he'd been working in. 
they hadn't appreciated the scale of the challenge. Michael Collins had very little time for him. That uh, he was seen as the compromiser, the man who would always uh, back down, that the man who had uh, uh, sacrificed the nation at Clontarf, who hadn't really achieved anything anyway. And it's funny that his international reputation was much stronger. When Jules Verne was writing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, he has in Captain Nemo's stateroom on the Nautilus <coughs> portraits of all of the great figures of world history. Abraham Lincoln, the defender of, of liberty. And there is a portrait there of O'Connell, the defender of his people. And when Jules Verne was translated into English, that was one of the sections that was left out. And the first time that Daniel O'Connell and Jules Verne has appeared in an English language edition of Jules Verne was in 2008. Charles de Gaulle's grandmother wrote a biography of Daniel O'Connell, and it was Charles de Gaulle's favourite book when he was a young man. And he, for some reason, saw much to identify with the story of a tall, powerful, charismatic man who had become uh, the embodiment of the spirit of his nation. And when he resigned as president of the Fifth Republic, in, what, 1969, the first place he went to was Ireland, and the place he landed was Kerry, because he wanted to go to Derry now, and he wrote in the visitors' book, in honour of the liberator. That O'Connell was someone who had a great international reputation, when on the eve of the American Civil War, all his speeches against slavery were published in the United States. I'll show you the clip after of Barack Obama talking about O'Connell. O'Connell had a much greater reputation because he was the champion of liberty. He was someone who had done an entirely different kind of activity that didn't rely on violence, that wouldn't result in a single drop of blood being shed, but that it would represent the hopes and the aspiration and the dreams of a nation, that he was their champion, but they were part of that same movement, that they were the hereditary bondsmen who were themselves seizing their freedom. And that was respected, I think, an awful lot more across the world than it ever was in this country. And that's why when we try and assess his reputation and the fall and the rise or the rise and the fall, there is that problem that with O'Connell's character, the flaws, the monstrous fantasy, the way when people would say, who's the greatest person in Irish history? And he would say, well, me. <laughs> the way he would love pointing out do you know who I am? I'm the person who won your freedom. The fact that he was monstrous towards uh, his friends, he was awful towards his enemies, he was dishonest, politically and personally, he, his treatment of women was, was appalling, with the finances and all of this, and yet for 47 years, he encapsulated, he epitomised the hopes and the aspirations of a nation that believed that they were broken down, who, who believed that they would never be free. And that's why I think by making himself the Irish chieftain, by making himself the representative of the nation, by doing all of that, he also made himself the person who deserved the title of the liberator. <laughs>